We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the William fighting Mac McKenzie is the most famous man of the Anzacs of World War I that you've never heard of. When he returned to Australia in early 1918, he was mobbed wherever he went by the veterans who had come home, by the families and friends of Anzacs who he had helped, by writing to them about the deaths and the circumstances of the deaths of their loved ones, by helping distribute thousands of letters and parcels from Australia to our boys in his lonely soldier campaign, and most importantly of all, for what I'm going to talk about in today's program about Fighting Mac, by lifting up the dead bodies of our fallen, often in the middle of no man's land, and burying them in a place where for the whole time he did this, he was in great danger of death or maiming himself. To many of the people who were so desperate to shake his hand when he got home, the reason they were desperate to shake his hand was because his hands were the last human contact that their loved one's lifeless body had. Mac digging a grave for him and then gently lifting the man's body into the grave to bury him with a Christian burial service. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God in his great mercy, to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed. We therefore commit his body to the grounds, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be like unto his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Fighting Mac was a Salvation Army chaplain with the AIF. He was the man the Anzacs revered. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been to have been so respected and venerated by these men? God bless the Salvos. In my previous programs about Fighting Mac, I've already talked about the burial services that he had conducted at Gallipoli, one of the first that he performed was the burial of the commanding officer of Mac's 4th Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Thompson. His body had taken over a fortnight to recover from a very exposed position, being left in the hot sun. The state of his body is difficult for us, living in our safe environments, to imagine. In just the first 10 days, Mac was on the beaches at Gallipoli. He had buried 170 men. After the Battle of Lone Pine in August 1915, over a period of three weeks, Mac buried another 450 Australians. Again, bodies that had been left baking in the hot sun of Gallipoli. With the Australians now taking up a position in the line on the Western Front, after their evacuation from Gallipoli, Mac's work of burying the dead became more intense in the efficient grinding death machine that he found there. Author Daniel Renault, in his book The Man the Anzacs Revered, 
about Fighting Mac tells the story of when Mac's 4th Battalion went into the line at Pozieres. He says, As part of the 1st Australian Division, the 4th Battalion arrived from Flanders to the Somme before the village of Pozieres, where several British attacks early in the month had made little progress against strong German defences. The ground was littered with the bodies of the dead, shattered by the concentrated artillery barrages from both sides. Immediately, Chaplain Mackenzie took his jacket off and soon afterwards his shirt as he toiled with pick and shovel to bury the impatient dead, more British than German. With a few words of comfort, he would consign them to glory. Another chaplain witnessed his repeated excursions into no man's land to carry out the wounded. As on Gallipoli, the burial of the dead was the one task seen almost universally by the Anzacs as sacramental. The chaplain who would carry out this under fire, and there were quite a few like this in the AIF, earned the lasting respect of the men and their families in Australia. On 23 July 1916, the Australians attacked Pozieres and took some ground, creating a bulge in the German lines. This attracted the concentrated fire of the massed guns of three German divisions. Their fire came at unpredictable times. Trenches of the Australians were destroyed as quickly as the men could dig them. Mackenzie wrote, Many men were buried and dug out several times, others unable to get out and perished. Some went mad, quite a few lost their nerve, and some more blown to pieces. The shattered survivors were subjected to continual German counterattacks, a standard practice in the German army of both world wars that kept their enemies constantly unsettled and often saw them driven back from a position that they had just taken. Mack worked with the regimental medical officer, Captain Walter Stack, who had set up his aid post so close to the front that it was under bombardment. At night, the guns fell silent and Mack went out into no man's land. It was called that for a good reason. No man out there was expected to live for long. Mack was with the stretcher bearers. One observer wrote, The eerie silence was punctuated by the groans of the wounded and the whoosh of an occasional flare lighting up the battlefield. Out in no man's land with the stretcher bearers, sometimes silhouetted by flares, against the tortured skyline, Chaplain fighting Mac Mackenzie of the 4th Battalion was dispatching the dying and the dead to their final reward. In the hot night air, the stench of decomposing bodies was nauseating, stifling. He worked to the point of collapse with pick and shovel and Bible. Daniel Renault relates that at one point he stood on a mound of rubble in No Man's Land and sang his sunshine song in the darkness. Not a shot was fired at him. He spent ten days ministering to the wounded and collecting and burying the dead. He wrote in his diary, It was trying and at times risky work. That was very much an understatement. In just six weeks of the Battle of Pozieres, the Australians lost as many men as they had lost in the eight months of the Gallipoli campaign. Max's exposure, often in plain view of the Germans, put his life repeatedly at risk, and his survival through each of these occasions is something that I now need to cover, because it's a remarkable story. 
Between 8 August and 3 September 1916, three Australian divisions were involved in a battle for a dominant position overlooking Pozieres called Mouquet Farm. Mack's 4th Battalion was thrown into the attack and wasn't withdrawn until 19th August. The Australian trenches had been under heavy German shellfire and Mack was prominent in bringing in the wounded from no man's land and conducting burials of British dead, sometimes in full view of the Germans. Mack wrote to his superior, Commissioner Hay, about his experience at and around Mouquet Farm Battlefield. His letters were published in the newspaper of the Salvation Army, The War Cry. I had buried seven of these fallen heroes, all Sussex men, when my guardian angel said, Get away from here quickly! I obeyed instantly, and had got away twenty-five yards, in a slanting direction, from the enemy's fire, when a big shell landed right on the spot where I had been, standing moments before. I only got a shower of dirt. At all times of great danger, I am quietly conscious of this guardian angel's presence while engaged on such work. I cannot see him, nor can I tell who or what he is like, but I hear his voice sometimes saying, Do not go there. Get in here. Lie down in that shell hole. Be careful. You're quite safe. Wait five minutes here and such like messages. I could give at least six instances within the past week where a prompt attention to his instruction has saved me from those big shells. I now know that if I pay heed and obey God, I will continue unharmed until my work is finished. So if I fall on the field, you will know the reason. I'm ready to live or die. I have no fear or doubt. I only wish I loved God more and was in possession of much more of the spirit of compassion of Jesus. He also wrote to his wife, Annie, where we have had a very trying, dangerous time. Also, many of my Australian boys now lie lifeless and many more wounded. Only for heeding the small voice of my guardian angel on several occasions, I would Two have been no more. It is most remarkable. When I am in great danger, I am quite conscious of a guardian angel with me, who, though I cannot see him, tells me in times of peril just what to do, and I have learned to promptly obey, and so come off all right. Sometimes it is go, others do not go, and again, get away quickly, lie down, be careful, go in there. It is very striking and has deeply impressed me. I am sure it is a guardian angel. Surely the Lord is good, and his mercy endureth forever. I talked about angels in a previous episode of this series about fighting Mac. I told you that a survey in 2017 found that 40% of Australians believe in angels. Mac's experience of constantly exposing himself in the most blatant way where the chances of not being killed, or at least being seriously wounded, and neither of those outcomes befell him, clearly shows that he was under God's protection. One Australian soldier wrote of Fighting Mac, Captain Mackenzie is not a dugout chaplain or behind-the-line worker. He is where the shells fall the thickest, and cries for help are the most numerous. 
That is where we always find him, and today I had the pleasure of seeing him receive his second decoration for conspicuous bravery. There are men who tell for Christianity in this great struggle, the men whom all the world might follow and consider it an honour to be led by such a man. Mac wrote of the Australian soldiers after this fighting for Mukay Farm. The brave, dauntless boys who have once more covered themselves with glory when taking trenches and booty from the enemy, their cheerfulness, fearlessness is something to wonder at as they dodge along battered trenches with their implements of war, water or rations without the slightest hesitation, even when the 5.9s, that's 150mm shells, are falling all around us. After his 4th Battalion had been withdrawn from the line for rest and to take in replacements, a process that would see the battered and bruised Australians out of the line for 10 weeks, Mac was offered two weeks' leave in England, but he turned it down. As he wrote, I did not want to leave the boys at this juncture. They need encouraging and cheering, and they simply dote on me and are ready to do anything in reason that I ask them. The hold I have on the men is marvellous. They think that I am without fear in any place, and I'm afraid tell some tall yarns of my doings. And just like when he was on Gallipoli and working himself to a frazzle, when other men would have taken a break when they could get it, time free for Mac meant finding something else to do. So let me tell you about one of those things. When Mac was in Egypt and then later at Gallipoli, he took every opportunity to provide entertainments for the men, to keep them occupied. The American philosopher and leading political figure Benjamin Franklin once paraphrased Proverbs 16.27 when he said, idle hands are the devil's playthings. Young boys far from home, far from the watchful and caring eyes of family and friends, could easily get up to things that might ruin their lives after the war. So Mac kept up his concerts, sporting events and evangelical meetings to try to bring as many of the boys to Christ as he could, or at least to keep them out of trouble. He was mindful that they were likely to meet their creator sooner rather than later. He was legendary in his ability to get concerts going from a completely cold start, as these recollections of some Anzacs reveal. He is the greatest card, I think, I have ever met. Last night we were all sitting around our billets when we heard someone coming along shouting out, Come on, lads, we're going to have a concert. We've got two violins and all sorts of instruments down in the woods. Put away your cards, some were gambling, and let's have a good time. Then away he goes, further along the street, into the drinking houses and everywhere he can get in, he will go. And as all the boys knew him, he gets a great reception. Before five minutes were up, the men were all tramping off in the direction of the wood, and he soon put in an appearance and called for volunteers for a program, which was soon filled, and a concert going in real good style. Another Enzac said, Old Mac had all the boys singing tonight. He came round to our billets where there is a small piece of vacant ground almost in the middle of the town. He started with just a handful, but you should have seen the crowd grow 
It was wonderful. In no time, he had a sacred service in full swing, nearly all singing, you know, and with just a prayer in here and there. He is a grand fellow. The best of the boys will tell you in the AIF he is almost idolised by the Australians. You have no idea how that man is liked. I'll bet he can sway the whole of the Australians any way he chooses. And he would give you half of his last penny. Such a man is Captain Mackenzie, a salvationist. He had a gift of a practical Christian. He'd worked closely amongst the roughest types before the war, as another digger wrote of him. His remarkable versatility, surprising general knowledge and a vast understanding of human nature, especially was he quick to judge the character of his fellow men. He seemed to know everybody, and as he moved freely among the troops, his invariable greeting was, Hello, hello, how are we? The troops individually and collectively often tried to take a rise out of Mac, but he was far too clever for them and always got the best of the bouts of repartee. Mac's popularity wasn't just with the enlisted men. He also mixed with the officers, including the top officers. It was his intimate knowledge of the souls under his care that made him a remarkable asset to General Birdwood, who was then in command of the Australian 1st Division. By the way, General Birdwood was the man who coined the acronym ANZAC at Gallipoli. I thought I'd just slip that one in. Birdwood made a habit of asking Mac to accompany him when he was inspecting the troops. Birdwood knew that Mac could give him a far more valuable insight into the spirit of his men than anyone else, including his officers. Mac also had the reputation amongst the officers of being gifted in understanding the art of war. It was an interest that he'd developed at Gallipoli and kept up throughout the war. Mac became an authoritative source in the officers' mess discussions. One of the officers told a journalist that Mac's verdict on any technical point was taken as final. The local merchants ripped off the soldiers whenever they bought something. Common story. So, not as if Mac already had too much to do, which he did, he opened up a brigade canteen, selling the things the men needed at as close to cost price as possible. He then used the small profit that his canteen generated to buy gifts that the men would appreciate, like metal matchboxes. Those would keep the men's matches dry when they were in the trenches. His canteen, of course, sold no alcohol. To buy the stock he sold, he had to travel to a town called Popering to buy stores and then bring them back. He had two soldiers to help him operate the store. The workload was immense. How he found the time to do this is hard to imagine. Just let me give you an idea. This was a typical day for Mac. He would go to sleep at about 4am. After spending the night writing letters to families back home, especially ones that had lost one of their loved ones. He then got up at about 7.40am and rode a pushbike for over 12 kilometres to conduct a burial. He'd come back at lunchtime and then conducted some interviews. Then he headed off to Popperingy to buy stores for his canteen 
getting back at about 7.30pm. This was followed by a three-kilometre cart trip for tea. At 9pm, he rode a horse another 12 kilometres for more funerals. When he got to where the funerals were supposed to be conducted, he found that not enough graves had been dug. So he had to rouse up 10 men at midnight to get that task done. Then he conducted the burials. After a ride back, he then walked three kilometres to the new camp and went to bed at about 4.30am, but couldn't sleep because of exhaustion. He only fell asleep at 6am. If you thought Mac surely had no free time now, you shouldn't be surprised to hear that Mac then opened a second canteen. Between 6pm and 6am, he ran hot coffee and bovril beef tea down to men coming back out of the trenches from fatigue-carrying duties. Mac's impossible pace of life saw him sent back to England for rest, but Mac couldn't stay away from his beloved men. The bloody Battle of Bullecourt had taken place while he was away during April and May. Attacks conducted on 11 April and 3 May had caused 10,000 Australian casualties. These were the worst losses the Australians suffered in World War I. He returned to France in June 1917. There was no understanding in those days of combat stress fatigue, which could lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. So when Mac got back to his men, he found, to his horror, that hundreds of the men he knew when he had left for leave just a few weeks ago were now dead. I repeat, hundreds of men now dead. Mac was in any event clearly exhausted beyond recovery, and it was decided that he had to be sent back home. Mac's final days in France were, of course, spent in feverish activity, looking after his men. The 4th Battalion was in action. Mac was going up with them. He was struck five times by dirt from shells that exploded near him. He finally ceased duties on 25 November 1917. Three days later, he was given the extraordinary and unique honour of having an official parade of the 4th Battalion, something only ever done for high-ranking general officers. Lieutenant Colonel Mackay announced that the parade was ready for his inspection. The entire 4th Battalion broke out singing Mac's Sunshine Song, as he strode through the ranks, a flood of tears pouring down his cheeks. After some time in England, Mac boarded his ship for the return to Australia. What happened when he got there was extraordinary, but more of that in my next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer, probably the best beer in the world. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other weirdly named program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. Tune in for that too.